Hi there, and welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a big change of pace for the series, because instead of focusing on a video game, drumroll, today's episode focuses on a book about video games. I know, crazy. But I think this book is important, and I think it'll be of interest to followers of History Respawn. The book, published this year by Rutledge, is called Digital Games as History, how video games represent the past and offer access to historical practices. And it was written by Adam Chapman, who's one of the leading voices in the field of historical game studies. Adam is a postdoctoral fellow in historical games in the Department of Education, Communication, and Learning at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. His book focuses on placing historical video games into categories of analysis and determining how the form of historical video games can offer unique representations of the past. I want to highlight this work on History Respond because I think it is a useful primer for how scholars discuss historical games in an academic setting. As you'll hear in the interview, Adam's work has a lot to say about how historical games compare with other mediums, like books and films, when representing the past. He's also got compelling ideas about how we should view both game developers and game players as participants in creating history. I certainly got a lot out of this conversation with Adam, and I hope you will too. With that said, here's the interview. All right, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So how did you get started with studying historical video games? Was there a particular game or book that led you down this path? Um, I think uh, this started for me really when I uh, came to write my undergraduate dissertation during my history degree. Um, Originally, I actually wanted to write about um, Arthurian myth. Um, So I think I always had an interest in sort of popular perceptions and engagements uh, with sort of myth and memory and and history. Uh, But they didn't allow me to do this, which was fair enough, really, because it it was really a degree of modern history. Um, But they asked me to think about what I was interested in. uh, And I sort of came to the conclusion I was interested in games and that maybe there was something interesting to say there. Um, When I did my master's in cultural history, I carried on with this interest. um, And that was my first publication, my master's thesis. Um, And then I was lucky enough to get a PhD PhD scholarship under the title of Heritage in the Public Sphere, which was obviously also kind of um, relevant to games. So it allowed me to pursue that research further. But I think really maybe the the seed uh, of interest had been planted earlier. Um, In the opening of the book, I talk about uh, Medal of Honor uh, and that sort of opening landing and Medal of Honor Frontline or Allied Assault, where you do the the, uh, Normandy landings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think as a teenager, that and playing games like Age of Empires sort of sparked something. You know, it wasn't really a fully formed thought, um, but there was something there that, you know, maybe games could do history. Um, I, I think courses also probably had an influence. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I studied um, historical film, for example. And I think that got me interested in the way history functions in avenues outside of academia. Um, and also I did a course on the theory of history, which I initially hated, uh, as I'm sure many <laughs> undergraduates do. Um, you know, you can't see the point of it at first, but eventually I really sort of over the court, over the um, duration of that course really grew to like looking at the big questions surrounding history. And that introduced me to sort of texts that would influence me later, such as Hayden White's meta history and E.H. Carr's what is history. 
Um, but I really first looked at uh, games um, earlier than that, actually, uh, in a sociology course at uh, college. I wrote an essay on gendering games, and that's how I found the whole Game Studies discourse through the Game Studies Journal. Um, yeah, in terms of books, I guess uh, Robert Rosenstone's History on Film, Film on History, has been a huge influence on me. Um, particularly the idea that uh, different forms have different possibilities and limitations uh, and that popular culture should be treated seriously. And uh, Alan Munzler's narrative in history as well, which kind of breaks historical representation into narrative components. I think that actually informed the structure and approach of my own book where I kind of try and break historical games into components. So I think all those things kind of coalesced to lead me to look at historical games. Great. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like you said, that you uh, kind of your first contact with... uh studying games in a course came through a sociology course and it seems to me that at least from my perspective in america that historians and uh, maybe some other humanities scholars are a little bit late to the game uh when it comes to studying games is that your experience in europe uh maybe uh i mean it's it's quite difficult to say because game studies as a field is so interdisciplinary anyway um that everybody comes from somewhere that's not games generally um so I know like lots of people do have backgrounds in history, but I guess if you look at it in terms of the the sort of history of game studies uh, as it is, uh, you know, sort of starting uh, arguably somewhere in the mid-90s, but really more around the year 2000, um, I guess, yeah, we have been maybe a little bit slower to sort of consider this aspect of games. Uh, but I mean, there are publications out there, you know, in sort of 1999 about sort of civilization um, uh, and things like that. But I personally sort of think historical game studies really gets going around 2005 with Arichio's, um text, mm-hmm. um, simulation history and computer games. So I guess, yeah, maybe we've been a little, little bit slower, but I, I hope we're making up for it uh, now. <laughs> we're catching up, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, a related question. I mean, there are a lot of people in academia, particularly in the field of history and elsewhere, uh, who would dismiss the study of history in games, uh, primarily because it is popular history at best, and popular fantasy at worst. Why do you feel studying historical games is worthwhile and important? Yeah, I think uh, I think in a sense the answer is also kind of part of the critique. Like uh, you mentioned that it's popular history or popular fantasy. But I think popularity is also the obvious answer as to why these games uh, matter. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, it doesn't really matter if we as historians like these games or not because they are, they're out there, they're doing historical work in the world. Uh, and I think it's important that we understand them. Um, there's a quote from a historian called Carl Becker that I love um, and I used as the epigraph for the first chapter of my book. Um, and he says, uh, Mr. Everyman is stronger than we are and sooner or later we must adapt our knowledge to his necessities. Otherwise he will leave us to our own devices, leave us to cultivate a species of dry professional arrogance growing out of the thin soil of antiquarian research. Such research, valuable not in itself but for some ulterior purpose, will be of little import except in so far as it is transmuted into common knowledge. The history that lies inert in unread books does no work in the world. Becker actually wrote this in 1932, but I think <laughs> not only is this still relevant today, it's actually more relevant than ever ever before. Um, and I don't mean to say that like if, that academic history is isn't important because of course it's hugely important, and and without academic history these games would have you know a lot less to draw on. But I think we also have a, a duty and responsibility to take seriously and try to understand the myriad of ways that people engage with the past. Um, because most people after their formal education are going to be engaging with the past through Wikipedia, games, film, TV, novels, rather than you know, academic history books or journals. Um, 
More specifically in terms of games, uh, I think games can be defended in a number, a number of ways as a, a viable uh, interest. Um, obviously, a lot of historical games are based on a lot of research. I think they have some really exciting possibilities. They can work in new ways that we don't see in other media. Uh, but they can also engage some of the really fundamental questions and theories of history. Uh, you know, games as systems of play are intrinsically concerned with action, um, with change over time, essentially, which is generally what we are also concerned with as historians. Um, and as part of this, they also tend to focus on causality, again, something we tend to be concerned with. Uh, this is a natural quality of rule systems. And it can be very complex. You know, a single game can include a discussion of contingency, you know, the unpredictability of the past as a mm -hmm. lived experience, and uh, the capacity of human agency. But it can also show the role of large-scale structures and how these exert pressure on historical outcomes. Um, and I think that's really exciting to have uh, texts uh, or in, in the wider media sense, uh, uh, I mean text, so get, including games, um, this kind of media form that is made of a lot of bundles of contradictions sometimes, but actually those contradictions reflect the same kind of questions that we're talking about in history. Uh, and of course, there's, they can do a lot of the stuff that things like historical film can do. They can provide visual data, um, but they, unlike film, allow us agency to appreciate this data um, at our own pace uh, and things like that. Yeah. And I think it's really critical for historians to be in that space, especially when you consider the kind of fact, that, you know, just looking around in society that, you know, for most people, especially um, children growing up, I mean, their first contact with history might actually come through a game, might come through a tablet game, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's I think we have to accept the fact that people um, are drawing understandings from these things and they're also deploying them to you know, create their own interpretations, create mm -hmm. their own understandings. And I think that's just as important, you know. Um, it's, it's. I, I would never argue that, you know, academic history isn't needed. And, you know, I, I hate these kind of technological utopian arguments that, you know, uh, like games are going to replace everything else and, and that's all we need or, you know, any kind of technology, you know. But I see the potential for uh, sort of synergy effects and harmony between these uh, aspects if we if we take the time to you know treat them seriously absolutely so turning to the book uh, more specifically now uh, your work focuses on analyzing and categorizing the potential forms of historical games rather than the specific historical content of those games can you tell our listeners what you mean when you are talking about a game's form and can you tell us why studying a game's form is often more useful than studying its specific content? Yeah, so um, for me, the content of a history or, or wider uh, types of media uh, is the thing that is being represented or communicated in, in that, in that uh, text. So, for example, in Assassin's Creed 2, uh, this would be uh, a sort of uh, history of Renaissance Italy, for example. Um, the form, in a sense, is kind of everything else. Uh, it's the vehicle within which we construct the content and through which we communicate it. So it's the style, the techniques, uh, and the media, in this case, games, that we use to communicate the content. Um, now, I have to point out, I do think content analysis can be really important and, and really useful when it's done carefully. And I think History Respond as a series shows this. You know, Some of the analysis there are really interesting and really useful. Um, but I think there's a tendency we see uh, elsewhere um, uh, in which sometimes historians approach popular culture very uh, simplistically almost um, in terms of, for example, only considering accuracy of the included content. Um, 
Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this kind of analysis. It's just that it doesn't really tell us much about whether tell us much um, other than the fact that the producers of the game, film, or book got something wrong or or right. Basically, it doesn't really tell us anything broader about how, say, games work as history or why these things might have been changed in the media products in the way that they are. And in a sense, I think it's kind of unfair to compare the content of popular history to academic history when they're produced in very different environments under different economic and cultural pressures uh, and for different aims. Um, and this is not to say that, of course, both don't try and entertain and inform. I think everybody has probably, even in a journal article, had a sort of rhetorical flourish of some kind, um, which might not be to entertain in the same way that uh, a game is. But still, there are aesthetic parts to to um, both popular and academic history, I think. Um, so I think the, uh, there are some similarities maybe that we, we overlook, but also uh, these uh, products also have different aims uh, and they, do, they aim to do things to different degrees. Um, the reason formal approaches are interesting to me is because by comparison, they allow us to say something about many or even all historical games at once. Um, by looking at form, we can start to get a better picture of the underlying commonalities of historical games and get a sense of their their qualities, their limitations, their future possibilities in relation to making meaning about the past. Furthermore, I think as historians, we're generally pretty good at analysing historical content, or at least we should be, um, but we often pay less attention to form. And in fact, uh, often the former relies on the latter. So scholars such as Hayden White, Alan Munslow, uh, Robert Rosenstone, Keith Jenkins, for example, have long argued now for, for decades that form is actually something that determines the content. That's to say that the, the means we use to say something about the past, um, whether this is a journal article, a film or a game, also partly determines what we say about that past. Um, and of course, there are things that games can do that history books might struggle with uh, and vice versa. Um, so each historical form has its own possibilities and limitations, what Rosenstone called rules of engagement. And for me, considering form is important because it allows us to get a better understanding of what these rules of engagement for games might be. And because work on historical games hasn't yet been uh, formalized, really, uh, I wanted to do something a bit ambitious with the book. And so I tried to set out to think in the broadest terms about what we can say about how games function in relation to history and how changes in formal structures, you know, like different design patterns in games often result in very different histories uh, and allow us to engage in different kinds of historical practices. Yeah, I think that's a really great approach, and it's something I really appreciated reading the book because I feel like it it's appropriate, you know, like you said, because the field is still relatively new, but also because I think focusing on form really captures, at least to a certain extent, the perspective of game developers, uh, and also to a certain extent, I'd say players as well. They think a lot about form with regards to this medium. And I think that that approach uh, is a good way to kind of maybe draw connections uh, between the work of developers and then also uh, scholars who might be looking at this stuff. Yeah, I hope so, because I think then we we can sort of reach a common language to kind of talk about these things. And, and of course, um, you know, the, the book, of course, borrows on some of the existing game study stuff, which in turn has borrowed from industry, you know, in, in terms that have been generated organic during design processes, uh, organically during design processes. So, yeah, I, th I think form is a good way to be able to speak in a common language um, and speak across um, interests um, and aims, if you if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, yeah, I think uh, that's something I find interesting about it. And and it's again, as I say, it doesn't mean that the content of individual games isn't uh, important. Um, but I think form has the potential to inform all of those conversations as well. Yeah, absolutely. So related to this issue of form, um, are there particular elements related to the form of historical games that make them different from, say, a historical novel or film in terms of how they can present the past? Um, yes, yeah. I, uh, I think this is a really important question uh, to ask. Um, in my opinion, there are, there are both many similarities and many differences between games and other historical media, but undoubtedly the most important distinction is, is the issue of agency. Um, and of course, the consumers of any media are never really truly passive, or at least not in the sense it's been thought of in the past. And sort of recent debates in media studies have, have sort of tried to pick apart this idea. But I think we can all agree there's something different about games in comparison to other media. Um, there's, it's hard to think of obvious other examples from other media where we can actually alter the representation itself, for example. Um, generally speaking, it's the potential for agency and, and the relation of this to rules, of course, another core aspect of games um, that, to me, allows games to produce meaning in, in, in ways that are difficult or even impossible in other forms. Um, it makes very it makes historical games very good, for example, uh, as I mentioned earlier, dealing in explanations of action and causality. Uh, and they're very good uh, explaining systems because they are of course themselves systems but I think the most interesting thing to me is that in historical games um, this agency is also particularly important because invite players into a kind of uh, co-creation mm -hmm. um, I wrote about this quite a lot in the book that historical games are systems of shared authorship the exact historical narrative that emerges from a game is always at least partly determined by the player. Now, the degree, of course, varies between games, um, but it's always there somehow because without agency, we it's not really a game if we know how it's going to end. Um, we have, there has to be some kind of room for improvisation, some freedom for sort of uh, creativity on the player's part. Um, so this agency has particular significance um, because games can not only allow us to receive representations of the past, but also to actually take part in historical practices. Um, not only to receive history, but to engage in historying. Um, now, this isn't an ugly term, I know that, um, but I find it very destructive. And I have to say, it's not its not my term, but I, I think it works very well. Historying is sort of to engage in the doing of history rather than just the reception of history. Um, for example, I describe in the book how some games allow us to have heritage experiences by wandering around virtual historical worlds or examining recreations of historical artifacts. Um, games can allow us to engage in historical reenactment by confronting us with similar perceptual challenges to those which face people in the past. And this can give us insight into these challenges and the kind of affordances that were important to people in the past. Um, those experiences are mainly found in shooters, action adventure games, open world games where we play as a particular character in a virtual historical world. I think by comparison in strategy games, we often don't really play as a historical character at all. Or there's very little sense of this, at least, you know, in, in Civilization they have the leaders, but it's it's not really a, a, a huge part of the game. We don't often get the sense we're actually playing as, no, as this you, leader. You, you've never seen me dress up as Teddy Roosevelt when I play Civ Six, so... Uh... <laughs> I, I would like to see that the historical reenactment combined with Civilization. I'm, I'm, sure, it happens. I'm sure it happens. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I... I 
I think in those games, there's there's less of a sense of that, you know, particularly when these leaders live for, you know, 5,000 years or whatever. Uh, and so I, I sort of argue in the book that in these games, I think we're actually playing more as a historian um, because these games allow us to tinker with a model of the past or a narrative of the past to explore causal relations and how events might have worked out differently and, and what sort of factors that we might theorize or the game might theorize might have influenced these processes. So in these games, the emphasis is on building our own stories on the relatively blank canvas of the space the game provides. Um, they allow us to engage in historical practice by... Um, emphasizing experimenting with historical narrative and allowing us to write stories about the past through play. Uh, and this allows players to experiment with counterfactual history, for example, as well. There's sort of what-if questions um, that some scholars have argued can be very useful, um, that we can learn to understand what did happen in the past by learning to understand what didn't. Now, all this to me means that historical games offer a kind of enfranchisement. Um, they offer popular access to types of historical practice that were previously quite rare or maybe a little overwhelming, um, exclusive or, or unavailable. Um, so they're offering this history to millions of players uh, in accessible ways. Um, so, for example, digital games allow reenactment and heritage experiences to be experienced in a less logistically complex and expensive way. Mm -hmm. uh, it requires no travel, it's relatively cheap, and it requires what for many people now is not specialist equipment, you know, a, a TV and, and a console or a PC. But I also think they're enfranchising because the access they offer to historical practices, um, such as the reenactment and the experimenting with historical narratives and counterfactual history, is is structured. This isn't, you know, we can go and do uh, whatever we want. It's not completely free agency. There's rules here. So by providing this coherent rule-based structure to these activities, but still allowing agency, they create a system that can supplement some of the training or skills normally required to engage in these practices. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we think of experiments with counterfactual history, that would be pretty overwhelming for most of us that aren't experts in that period uh, or event because of the uh, overwhelming number of variables. However, games can provide systems where counterfactuals can be playfully experimented with and thought about, but in a limited system that's less overwhelming and where a lot of the work is already done. So in a time when we're calling for greater outreach and enfranchisement of audiences into the activities of history, games seem, at least to me, uniquely poised to offer something useful. Absolutely. And, you know, going off your point that you made in the book uh, regarding uh, enfranchisement, I think that's a really useful point. Um, do you see that playing a role in what's going on now with the development of virtual reality. Do you think virtual reality will kind of lend itself to this enfranchisement idea that you're talking about? And do you think that virtual reality might change the forms in which historical games can adapt the past? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that there will be some significant changes to the ways that, I mean, I, I, I also don't I haven't even sorted out in my own thinking of whether we can even consider this as kind of the same thing or as like a separate strand or right right i don't i don't even know how the parts going to fit together i i think it's exciting i i got the chance to try rift and vive recently um and i was really impressed actually I'm much more impressed with the technology than i thought i would be um so i think there's some interesting potential there uh i think it could be a really exciting development for reenactment for example um so in the book i've written ha about how Really, we can only reenact the kind of visual perceptual challenges of the past because the the way we physically interact with games is generally nothing like the way people interacted with their environment in the past. But I think VR kind of narrows this gap a little bit. It allows us to sort of maybe reenact some of those performatory, capa um, those performatory challenges. Um, 
And it, obviously, it'll depend on how the hardware develops. In a sense, it's maybe too early to say. Um, but I also think we need to be cautious here because I think perhaps one of the problems of, of games, particularly sort of games with these very complex 3D environments, is that they, they can actually carry quite a lot of epistemological authority, you know, in the, like how immersive and their sense of um, sort of being a fully developed world can be. Uh, and I think we have a chance to sort of make sure um, that maybe games are more self-conscious than other forms of historical media have mm -hmm. been. Mm -hmm. And I think VR runs the risk of sort of overriding that a little bit because they, you know, this experience is even more immersive. It has even more of the sense of, you know, um, you know, emotions a loaded term, but uh, yeah, in its everyday sense. I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful about it, but I think we need to be careful as well because of the, the kind of authority that could carry. Um, but yeah, I, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, so you've already touched on this issue a little bit, but, uh, throughout your book, you use the term developer historian and player historian when you're referring to historical game developers and historical game players. What's the reasoning behind the use of these hyphenated terms? Yeah. Um, so uh, now, of course, academic history is, is very much its own thing, and I, I would I'd never say um, anything otherwise. Um, but it's always seemed kind of restrictive to me to think that uh, or to think about the idea that academics are the only people allowed to do history, to, to act as historians, in mm -hmm, a sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it wasn't until relatively recently and that this was codified as a profession anyway, um, when we think about this in wider terms. But going back to Becker's quote before, I think we need to account for the fact that not only do we need to cater for the everyman, but perhaps the everyman has as much right to do history as we do, mm -hmm. and that it's really important that they do so. But of course, this doesn't mean that everyone should go out and write a history book or that everyone you know, has the training to do that. Um, but I think there's many ways to feather an interest in the past. And at the root, uh, at the root of it, to me, um, that is what a historian is. Uh, someone that attempts to make sense out of this huge mass of words, film, 3D environments, like scraps of evidence, um, that allow us to have any relation to the past at all and to kind of take that mass, interpret it and make meaning out of it. Uh, it for me, a historian is someone that endeavors to research, to form their own opinions and interpretations and to communicate these opinions and meanings to others. Um, and this might be in a book, this might be in a video game, or it might be something as simple as a chat at a local pub over a pub quiz question. Um, <laughs> and, you know, by chat, I, I, I really mean argument. But, uh, you know, we... <laughs> um, but most of us are historians of a sort of something, I think. We generally have an interest or a hobby which involves finding out about what happened before in that area of interest and how this might be useful to us to know and might relate to our lives today. And this might be as simple as knowledge of our favorite band or sports teams. To me, this is still history, even if it's contemporary history in some cases. Um, the thinking behind using the term developer historian particularly, uh, I wanted to use this to imply that firstly, we should take these games and the people that make them seriously. Um, because whether we as historians or historiographers, historiographers or philosophers of history sort of like this or not, these people are performing much of the societal role of the historian for millions of people. Right. And the thing that needs to be considered as important, if not always entirely unproblematic. Um, but the term is also designed to remind, hopefully, the reader that 
much of what goes into constructing an academic history goes into making historical games too, yeah. uh, or at least them. Of course, it depends on the game. Uh, so, I mean, decisions about content, there's research. They have to decide how to present the argument, decide on what causal factors they're going to um, highlight. They have to make aesthetic and eth ethical choices. They're informed by ideology. You know, I mean, much of this process might happen organically or unconsciously or be informed by reproducing other texts about the past, but it, it's still in there somewhere. Um, and so all of this to me means that the difference between academic history and popular history, including games, it's really a difference of degree, certainly, but it's not really a difference of kind. Um, it's all about trying to make meaning out about the past and communicate that meaning to others. And so that's that's why I try to use that term uh, for developer hist of developer historian. In terms of player historian, this was um, more to try and keep the reader centered on the fact that we don't just receive history in games when we play them, we also construct history. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, to sort of keep reminding the reader again of the second point of that book as well, the, the second half of the book, um, that we can actually engage in limited forms of the kind of practices that historians or reenactors normally do through games, uh, but that many of us didn't really get to try before games. So I think it's really important to remain mindful of this, that the the player is uh, the player of historical games has a special role in historical media uh, that's kind of a little bit different from other historical media uh, and again not to say that games are necessarily better or worse than these but these are the media but I wanted to kind of remain centered on that idea that you know this is something about practice as well and of course I think uh, like most academics I love to come up with new terms so there's there's probably a little bit of that. <laughs> It's good good for the citation numbers, at least. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I think that these are all really great points, and I really appreciated your use, uh, in particular, of the term uh, player historian. And it's something that it had been an idea of mine, but I hadn't really kind of, it kind of coalesced into a term. But, you know, when you think about historical games, and even when you think about non-historical games, there's a lot of, you know, kind of the grunt work that historians do that are in these games. I think in particular of games, uh, you know, a uh, derogatory term for them is walking simulators, but uh, it's something like Gone Home, you know, where you're picking up uh, audio logs, where you're looking at environmental clues. I mean, this is the, this is what historians do. I mean, I think more, more players, if they realize this connection, might be more interested in doing historical research in the traditional ways that historians uh, actually do them. And then, you know, in a larger sense, I think you know, players could have a, a better appreciation for something like historiography if they realize that, you know, the way that a video game is received is often very similar to the way a historical argument is received in the sense that, you know, you've got the, the first salvo, the first historical monograph on a subject in the same way you have the first game in a series, and then people respond to that by you know, modding a game or uh, in the sense of historians, you know, kind of uh, reviewing it, uh, writing responses. And so I think that there's actually a lot of commonality, a lot of connections that can be drawn uh, between history as a, a study and then also playing games. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. And I, I really like your example of Gone Home there. You know, this this kind of environmental storytelling when you're placed as a detective in an environment, essentially. I think that you're right, that very much overlaps with um, 
with the sort of practices of, of historians. And, and, and I really like Gone Home, actually, because I would consider that a historical game, you know. It's yeah, a, I would too. Yeah. Contemporary history, surely, but, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's still a, a really interesting representation of sort of what the 90s meant to this group yeah. of people that made the game, you know. Yeah, we've been talking about doing that for History Respawn for a while, but then it's kind of a matter of, well, are there historians of the 1990s, or could we just get somebody to come on and talk about nostalgia? I, I haven't really made up my mind yet, but uh, I am interested. And if anybody out there has got any ideas, please, please send me an email. Yeah, that that would be a really great topic for uh, uh, an episode, I think. So your book does an excellent job of cataloging forms of popular historical games, but I was personally surprised that the book didn't really engage with edutainment games. And it also seems to have a lot of skepticism toward using historical games in the classroom. And it seems to me that you'd like scholars to sit back and analyze history games created by, quote, developer historians, rather than participating in the medium themselves. Are the scholars pursuing game development wasting their time? Have I interpreted your book correctly, or have I missed the mark? Um, so I think I have to break this down into a, a few points. Um, firstly, I think, or at least I hope, that the book does relate to these kind of games too, uh, the edutainment games, um, by sort of aiming to break down the form of historical games into component structures mm-hmm. uh, and conceptualize variations and categories and stuff. Uh, I hope it relates to all historical games in some way, and, and this would include edutainment games, because um, these are, of course, still part of the form of historical games but they're subject to different um cultural and economic pressures but the the formal pressures tend to be the same uh but i think there are also two sort of entangled issues here uh in terms of uh us getting involved in making games uh, i think this can be a really useful exercise i think we can learn so much about the historical game form by engaging these kind of practices uh i think we have to be careful to do it humbly uh we should be careful of reinventing the wheel um I think we have to remain mindful that we have an awful lot to learn, uh, or at least personally I feel that I have an awful, awful lot to learn from commercially developed games, um, and that there are cases where members of the industry know way better than we do uh, because they've been through these processes before. Sure. And I don't, I don't just mean in like in terms of technical skills, but stuff like an awareness of the relationship between form uh, and historical content that's very um, nuanced, for example. Uh, uh, However, clearly academics getting involved in the development of games certainly has the possibility to produce really interesting results and reflections. Uh, and I'm thinking about games like uh, Czechoslovakia 38 uh, mm-hmm. to 89 here uh, that's been developed by the team at uh, Charles University in Prague. Um, the subsequent work they've, re- they've produced and reflected on this process I think is really good. Uh, I think the game is really interesting. Um, it did make me think, actually, as an aside, uh, something I find really interesting is that historical games designed to have more of an emphasis on education often end up with similar design patterns. Mm. So I'm thinking of the Czechoslovakia game here. I'm thinking 1979 Revolution, Black Friday, the game about the Iranian Revolution, uh, and maybe even Valiant Hearts. They all seem to share some kind of similarities in the kind of design patterns that they end up in. Uh, but that, that was, that's just an afterthought, really. Um, I think games design can be a useful teaching tool as well. Um, so at Gothenburg University, where I am, uh, I ran a course for international PhD students on historical games. Um, we did a day-long workshop there where students modded the World War II board game, Memoir 44, to represent other historical events. 
I think that the students found this, from the feedback I got, the students found this a really useful exercise for thinking about the kind of pressures and possibilities games introduce for the representation of the past. Um, I also personally run a workshop fairly often that involves modding uh, rock, paper, scissors to make it represent historical events. Uh, and this, again, also tends to produce useful discussions of the similar kind, you know, that what's the tensions between the form of rock, paper, scissors and trying to actually represent historical content was something so simple, um, even though this is a mechanic that's actually in quite a lot of historical games. Uh, but I really have no idea if these exercises would be useful at educational levels below higher education. Right. And this sort of brings me to what I think is the second uh, related but kind of separate issue. The use of historical games in the classroom and whether we should be recommending or advocating this as an inclusion into formal curricula. Now, clearly it's possible to use games in the classroom. I have to make that clear. Uh, and it's possible to do this in a potentially productive and thoughtful way. I think Jeremiah uh, McCall's nuanced and careful work really shows this. I think his work's great. Um, but I also think that Jeremiah's work points to two issues in this regard. Firstly, he clearly has a really great understanding of historical games. He is quite conscious of their strengths, their weaknesses, and uses this to inform his thinking on their pedagogical possibilities. Um, and I also think his work, secondly, points to the fact that these games seem to have the most utility as a kind of meta-discursive tool rather than just as uh, um, a tool for the delivery of content. Mm -hmm. So I think his work kind of shows the possibilities of historical games in education but also the kind of work and understanding that might prove to be essential to using these games effectively. So I'm extremely wary of debates that have the potential to ultimately result in putting further expectations on already overstretched teachers. I sort of think, do we really want to be asking teachers to develop another form of competency until we're absolutely sure this is worth it? Um, particularly when the wide-scale structural support that they would need um, to include these games into formal curricula, let's be honest, probably wouldn't be provided. Um, and too often when technologies are introduced without full, into, full understanding into the classrooms, then neoliberal discourse is simply blame teachers when it doesn't work out. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying here is that caution is the name of the game, so to speak. <laughs> you know, like, I think there are a number of practical logistical issues that need to be considered. Um, you know, there's an investment in time and money to get the most out of historical games. There's some great work by an academic called Björn Berg Markland um, that I can highly recommend on these topics. They're sort of practical day-to-day -day realities of using games in the classrooms. Um, I also think we have to be aware that every hour we use a game, we replace something else. Um, you know, there's a limited number of hours in, in the curriculum generally. Um, and if this replaces a proven pedagogical approach, there obviously can be problems. But I have to emphasize, this is not that I'm skeptical that games can't do anything, pedagogically speaking. I think they have interesting affordances. My skepticism is really more reserved for the next step these discourses tend to take that they have done in games and learning discourses in the past, which is sort of shift to a blanket recommendation of the tech um, as appropriate for everything and everywhere. Um, I think we have to kind of remain critical, take it slowly. There may well be potential here, but I think we need empirical studies on how effective uh, these games are before we advocate any kind of large-scale change to formal curriculum. Um, and it's not really a problem to get students to play games, or at least uh, in my experience, like right. most of them are going to do this anyway. You know, like most people grow up now playing games. Um, what astonishes me really is I see the problem as getting students to think critically about the games they already play. Um, and I never fail to be astonished. And, and of course, this varies between different countries. Um, but generally, I've never failed to be astonished by actually how little media analysis curricula tend to involve that, you know, students, as we mentioned before, are coming to the classroom already with historical understandings drawn from popular culture. And after school, they're probably the majority of them going to be engaging with the past through 
um, films, TV, novels, games rather than source work or history books. Mm-hmm. But it seems relatively rare to teach students how to properly critique these forms uh, of history and how they differ from one another. I think this is where my passion lies in a sense. I think this is what is a really pressing issue that we don't really teach this um, analysis. Um, but, and I, but I think the analysis that we do as well, I don't think it's sitting back necessarily. I think it's deploying the skills and experience we have in relation to those of the games industry because I think both of those um, professions are important if we're going to use games pedagogically. Um, But I guess personally, maybe I'm more interested in the broader theoretical questions rather than the specific deployment of games in heritage, educational, conflict simulation, for example. Uh, And I hope that those broader questions are useful anyway. Uh, And I'm particularly interested in the role of games in in the wild, so to speak, in the natural environment, in popular culture. because I've always been interested in, in this aspect of history. And, and like I said, I've, I've been influenced by academics like Robert Rosenstone. But I think there's something to be gained as well by examining these games according to the, the purpose, context, and criteria they were designed for. Uh, and it's also the place I see them making the most impact already. You know, I'm, I'm interested in what games are already doing out there, um, what players are doing with them, what online communities are doing with them, and what developers are doing with them. Uh, and I think they have a significance in this regard that we don't yet fully understand. Right. I think that that kind of study is really needed. The, uh, what you might call an ethnography of, uh, you know, players and uh, how they interact with that medium. And, you know, I think you're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, there is enough, uh, media studies, critical media studies that's introduced at say even the secondary level at most schools. And, you know, I think that's part of the current crisis in America with regards to fake news on Facebook. Um, you know, I think uh, your points are well taken, that, you know, uh, with regards to uh, kind of skepticism uh, with the games in the classroom. And, uh, you know, I think you're right in pointing out, you know, Jeremiah McCall's work. I think one of the best things that McCall has given us is kind of a sense of the logistics and the problems regarding logistics of getting these things introduced. I mean, I think he briefly mentioned uh, time restraints. And, of course, you know, if you are giving somebody... Uh, you know, civilization, for instance, to play, you're going to spend at least a week just teaching them how to play it. Uh, and that is time that most teachers, especially at the secondary level, are just not going to have. Just don't have. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. And then, but, uh, you know, conversely, I mean, even in poor school districts uh, here in uh, northern Louisiana, uh, they've all got iPads. They've all got, uh, you know, either state funded or federally funded iPads. And many of the instructors, some of whom I've actually taught through the master's program here at Louisiana Tech, they introduce games very early on in their history classes. So it's something that, you know, it's it's happening at the, you know, the grassroots level, uh, and it's not really coming from, um, you know, the ivory tower. And, and I think that's the, the when it's going to work the best, because people that introduce games into their teaching probably are going to understand games. You know, they're probably going to have some experience of it. They're probably going to get an They're going to have an idea of what can be done. I think the problem is when it becomes formalized. So then teachers that maybe don't have experience with games, aren't really interested in it, then have to do this next form of training. And, right. you know, when it becomes this blanket rule. And I think that's, that's really problematic because it's also, of course, often tied to... Um, you know, outside interests, you know, yeah. that people have to supply this technology and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm cautiously hopeful, but I, 
yeah, I'm, I'm also skeptical. I think we need a lot of research um, on it. And I think there's great stuff out there. You know, like, as I said, Jeremiah's doing some good stuff. Uh, some of the stuff Kevin Key's written, I think, is really good as well. Um, but, yeah, I uh, I didn't want to um, dive too deeply into that discourse, let's say, uh, in the actual book. Um, but I wanted to write stuff that I hope is relevant to it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so what's next? Uh, how are you planning on following up this work? And... Where do you see the field going? Yeah, uh, this is a, a, a good question, I think. Uh, so um, I, well, most recently, uh, I've started to sort of take a little bit look at uh, player practices. Um, so I've been doing a little bit of work looking at modern communities running historical games um, that I presented the first sort of initial results at, um, of at, um, the Frog Conference in Vienna. Um, but I've also been doing some work on World War One games, um, the representation of World War One games, which uh, turned out to be very timely because uh, Battlefield just came out, um, and the results of that should be published in the Game Studies Journal soon. Uh, in terms of bigger projects, uh, I'm hoping to um, write a book, maybe about historical games development, because um, we talk a lot about what game developers do, um, but we don't. Well, we very rarely ask them. Uh, and in my experience, the results can be very surprising. Um, so, for example, I saw a talk last week by a, a AAA developer of, of historical, a major historical game series about the criteria that they use to choose historical periods for their games. And, I mean, this criteria was complex. It was developed. It showed an absolute awareness of the relationship between form and content that I think sometimes some of us in academia could benefit from. Um but to do this kind of project, you know, to go out and interview a lot of game developers is obviously relying on funding. So I guess um, that one might be on the back burner. Um, but uh, I've started writing a, another book. Uh, I've started writing my second book. And this is going to be on the relationship of digital games to um, historical theory. Um, so a deeper look basically at how games relate to the kind of discourses um, that we have in the history profession at the moment. Uh, particularly on things like causality, uh, on narrative, and, uh, for example, the legacy of postmodernism. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to get up to next. In terms of the field, uh, I think this is a really interesting point. I think we're at a sort of turning point in the field now. Um, so those listeners that are interested in a more sort of detailed description of the state of the field, um, where it might be headed, um, myself and two colleagues have just published uh, an article in the Rethinking History Journal uh, entitled uh, What is Historical Game Studies? Uh, borrowing from uh, Carl's What is History that I mentioned earlier. There. Um, and that piece is currently open access too, so anyone can download that. Um, and that's an introduction to a special section uh, that we have there, so there's some more pieces on historical games there. Um, generally speaking, though, I would echo what you said uh, before. I think we need more understanding of players. Um, so combining that with like uh, the fact I'd like to look at developers, I think basically we need more work on production and consumption. Yeah, we've got really far, or I think we've got quite far with looking at the text themselves. And I think you know there's there's some great work out there on historical games, uh, and that we can say quite a lot with these methods of kind of textual and formal analysis. But I think it's also really important that we start to ground some of this in studies of people too. Um, I think luckily in this sort of second phase or generation of historical game studies. Um, like maybe I'm saying that because you know we have a we love to periodize things in history, <laughs> uh, but it does feel to me like there's a sort of second 
um, group of people coming through now with like new interests. Uh, and there's a lot of exciting PhD projects out there that are looking at exactly this kind of thing. They're actually studying people. Uh, the work of uh, Emil Hamar, for example, Tara Copplestone, uh, Sean Beavers, uh, all of uh, their PhD work looks really exciting. They've got this great empirical data that has been presented uh, that's really starting to answer some of those questions uh, and give us clues about where, you know, which of our assumptions have been correct, which have maybe need a bit more work and, you know, where we should be headed next. But generally speaking, I think there's a lot to be hopeful about in terms of where we are already. Our community is growing. There's more and more events and publications on historical games. It's a really t exciting time for, for uh, work on, on these games. Um, oh, and actually, in uh, relation to this, I'd like to mention uh, to your listeners the Historical Game Studies Network group um, that we have on Facebook. So if listeners are interested in research on historical games, then do feel free to uh, join us there at the Historical Game Studies Network group. Um, and yeah, become part of the discourse. Yeah, it's a great suggestion. It's a really good group. I know I've gotten a lot of contacts and a lot of good ideas from reading those posts. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm always glad to hear that it's, you know, it's working, that it's yeah. uh, connecting people up. You know, there's, there's groups of people all around the world studying historical games, but we just sort of need to get a sort of international network. And, and I think hopefully we're getting there. I think so. That's going to do it for our episode. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been uh, great to talk to you. Again, the book is entitled Digital Games as History, How Video Games Represent the Past and Offer Access to Historical Practices. And it is available through Rutledge in their Advances in Game Studies series. But it's it's uh, much cheaper if you buy the the ebook version um, from Amazon, not <laughs> 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 Kindle version. It's, it's, it's an expensive book, I will admit. You get the royalties either way, right? If you get it through Rutledge or if you get it through Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, there you go, listeners. So pick it up on Amazon. So until next time, goodbye. Mm -hmm.